0: Welcome to the South Fellowship Church Podcast. Here at South Fellowship, we exist to help people live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. Wherever you're listening from today, we hope you are encouraged by this week's message. Thank you so much, Grace, for reading the scriptures for us this morning. It's good to be with you, South. Uh, For those of you who are new or newish, Jake referenced it uh, referenced it a little bit, but my name's Aaron Bjorklund. Normally, I'm the I'm the worship pastor here, and so normally that means I'm up here leading the singing time. Um, yeah, but uh, wh- I got the opportunity to share the message today, and so that's exciting uh, for me. And it's also it's also sort of an interesting experience because as a worship pastor, you know, worship pastors are relentless for picking on pastors. You know, they always think that they could preach better than the pastor. And they always think that they could preach shorter than the pastor, and so um, how the tables have turned. <laughs> so um, this week, just whatever you do, if I preach for two hours, don't tell Alex, because I'll never live it down. I'll never live it down. Um, but yeah, we're, we find ourselves in Ruth, so if you want to turn there, feel free. Um, Also, I just wanted to thank uh, Jake and the team for leading us in worship. I mean, that was a tremendous time of worship for me. So sweet, so good. And uh, Jake must have made a lasting impression on some of you this last week because I actually had it on my agenda to talk a little bit more and introduce Jake to you this week because I knew I was gonna be preaching. You know, I'm gonna actually tie my shoe right now. Is that okay, everyone? That way I don't stumble over. So anyway, so Jake... Uh, must have made a lasting impression because I got some text messages from some of you asking who is this Jake guy and what's he doing and why aren't you gonna be uh, leading worship next week and what's going on and what's going on And so let me set your hearts at ease um, and introduce you a little bit t- to Jake I'll, funny story Uh, last year, middle of the year sometime, I found out that Kevin, who was my worship resident at the time, was going to be getting married. And he decided to step back from school and work full time and just invest in his marriage for a season. And as excited as I was for him, that meant that I didn't have a worship resident anymore. And so I was trying to decide what to do with that. Jake and I had been friends for years. And so sort of as a hopeful joke, I sent him a text message. Hey, Jake, you want to become my intern? And (laughs) And uh, you, know, I, it was totally a joke, because what you don't know about Jake is he runs a, an organization that helps thousands of churches develop their worship ministries and their tech ministries. His business was growing like crazy. He was leading worship at another church, and he was a busy guy at a growing family, all these sorts of things. But uh, much to my surprise, he did not text me back. Instead, he called me, and, and the first thing he said is, "Yes, I want to become your intern." And so that conversation sort of snowballed. We joked, we laughed about it a little bit, but he and I have been talking about partnering together and working together in ministry in some way because... Jake and I are kind of like what I called nerd twins. For some reason, we have all the same nerdy interests in all of the same categories. And so it was just a ton of fun. We started talking about that. Before you knew it, he found about, out about the open space next door here. He moved his headquarters quarters of churchfront.com to that, that space right next door here, and the conversation just kept on snowballing. But as some of you um, were sort of uh, in, intuiting and you're really smart, you were saying, there's gotta be something else going on here. And so there is a little bit of something else going on. Uh, What you may not know is about three years ago, or maybe two and a half years ago, the elders here at South established a sabbatical policy for the pastors on staff. And what that sabbatical policy states is that every seven years, every full-time pastor is supposed to take a three-month sabbatical to replenish, recharge, and fill up for the next season of ministry. I've been here for eight years full-time, and so I was actually supposed to take that sabbatical last summer, and, uh, but given the fact that we were in the middle of a pastoral search process, Larry had just announced his departure, Alex was on the horizon, and COVID and my family wouldn't be able to travel anywhere or do anything, we decided let's hold off on the sabbatical. Let's let Alice get established. Let's wait to hopefully have some of COVID lift and then I'll take a sabbatical. And so long story short, I'm gonna be taking a sabbatical from the months of May through July. And Jake has so kindly uh, been willing to step up and lead worship for us during that season of time. So this is Jake. Uh, Jake and his wife Kaylee, they have two twins, Amos and Galilee, and they ha- just had a couple weeks ago another little guy named Levi. And one of the things I want you to recognize, though, about Jake and his family is uh, just because he's filling in for our sabbatical during this, for my sabbatical um, in May through July, doesn't mean that he's just sort of like, A temporary fill-in kind of guy um, here at South. He and I have been dreaming about all sorts of new ways to partner and stuff and we have lots of dreams for long term in the future. His family lives right across Broadway here. They're super duper close. Part of the reasons he wanted to partner with us is because he can really invest his family in this community. And so they're here. They made South their home church and I'm looking forward to his leadership, his partnership, and a lot of things that my intern will be teaching me about (laughs) ministry and stuff. So... All right, well, that's actually all the time I had, so let's close in prayer. And no, I do wanna pray before we dive into this talk, so let's pray. Jesus, I thank you so much for your truth. Lord, I ask that today the things that I share um, would be empowered by your spirit and that they would sink deep into our hearts and transform us further into your image. And so, Lord, I pray the prayer that you taught us to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Let your kingdom come and your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. And Lord, I do pray that prayer, that your kingdom come as a result of this morning, we pray. Amen amen. Amen. So in this um, series... Alex asked me a few weeks ago, three or four weeks ago, if I wanted to preach as part of this Lenten series through the book of Ruth, and I said, yeah, sure, I didn't think I was going to get another opportunity before I took the sabbatical, and I like to stretch these muscles every once in a while. They get really, really rusty, and cobwebs start to form over my preaching muscles, so it's nice to to do that from time to time, but then um, I happened to read the passage that happened to land on the week that I had been assigned, and I thought, uh, hard pass hard pass, because this text is heavy, as you just heard that passage of grief and sorrow and lament. And for those of you who've been exposed to personality assessments, there's one of them out there that's been all the craze these days called the Enneagram, and I'm what you call a seven. And that means a lot of things for personality types and stuff. But one of the things it means is sevens, one of the major driving factors for a seven is the avoidance of emotional pain. So I read this text and I was like, I gotta, there's gotta be another angle that I could preach this passage. There, no, I don't think I can do this. And don't get me wrong, sevens aren't just, they don't wanna avoid all pain. Like they, they, they can watch pain on a movie or read about it in a book. It's not really when it's out there. It's when it starts to get a little bit closer to home. And when I read this passage and I read the tone of voice that I heard in Naomi's voice, I recognized that tone of voice because I heard it in my own tone of voice. And it was a little bit too close to home. And so I, I wrestled and wrestled. It weighed on me so heavily that right up until last Sunday, I was considering telling Alex that I couldn't do it. And then he so kindly announced with enthusiasm and excitement that Aaron was going to be preaching this week, and it was going to be incredible. And so here I am. (laughs) I couldn't back out. But I'll tell a little bit more about my story of grief and sorrow as the message goes on. But my guess is in a room this size, some of you have faced a season like that. Some of you have faced a season of sorrow, of grief, of loss, of pain, of pain. I mean, just look at 2020 by itself. I mean, that alone could bring many people to their knees in sorrow. The pandemic, political unrest, financial unrest, uh, riots and, and all sorts of violence, uncertainty about the future. When are we getting out of this? How do we continue to form relationships? How do we maintain relationships in a season like this? It was enough to bring just about anyone to their knees with sorrow. And so one of the questions that I wanna ask is what do you do when it all falls apart? (laughs) What can a follower of Jesus do when it seems like everything has unraveled around them? But I can also acknowledge in a room this size, maybe that's not you. Maybe actually, this season of COVID has done the opposite for you, and it's a beautiful season of COVID. Like you staying at home with your family, the pace of life has slowed down. You've started to recognize what the important things in life are about, and for you, it's actually um, it's actually been a sweet season. So, there's another question that I want to ask, and that's this: How can we love someone well who is in the clutches of grief? Because even if it's good for you, it doesn't mean that everyone in your circle of friends and your family is thriving in a season like this. And so how do you love them well? How do you come alongside them even though you're in a better place? And maybe another question would be this. What can I do in a good season to prepare to weather the bad ones? Well, I'm glad you asked those questions because otherwise I wouldn't have anything else to talk about. And so we're gonna look at this story, and I think that this story of Naomi actually gives us some tremendous insights into both how to weather a storm that we're currently in or that we just were in, and how do we prepare in the good seasons to weather the bad ones. You know, this reminds me of a passage in in John chapter 16, verse 33. It's a beautiful promise of Jesus, you will suffer in this world. Aren't you glad you came to church? What a promise. And so we need to learn how to weather these storms. So last week, uh, Alex kicked off our series in, in the book of Ruth. He gave us the context. Because we're in the genre of narratives in, the, in, this, cer- in this series, I want to just catch you up in case you weren't here last week. Or, in case you forgot, and I know you would never forget a sermon, but in case you forgot what's going on in the story, we were introduced to our characters. We have Naomi and Elimelech. They were living in the land of, in the, in the town of Bethlehem. Yes, Bethlehem, oh little town of the same Bethlehem. That little Bethlehem story. And then there's uh, they have two sons, but then there's a, a, a famine that takes place in Bethlehem. And so they're forced to move to Moab, which is an enemy country. It's sort of, there's hostility there, but they have to go because they need to find food. And if it, as if that wasn't bad enough, when they get there, the head of household, Elimelech, dies. And so it's this deep grief. There's famine and then death. And then, but there's still a little bit of hope because Naomi has two sons. And the sons could grow up. And in that culture, having a, a man in the household meant that there was still hope. There was still some prosperity potential. But so, so those two sons, they get married to Ruth and to Orpah and then the boys die. So that all takes place within the first five verses of this book, and the narrator wants us to feel the sucker punch of that moment. He he wants us to, to recognize the hopelessness. We're left with three widows, and in that culture, three widows without any prospects of marriage was a disaster. Grief, hopelessness, and that's where we pick up our story. Aren't you glad? So we read this passage in verse six. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughter-in-laws prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. So, Essentially, with left with no other options, Naomi hears that there's food again. There's now a famine in Moab. So death, death of two sons, widows, a new famine in Moab. There's nothing left to do. She hears that there's Uh, food back at home. Last week we heard that the word Bethlehem actually means the house of bread. She hears a whisper in her ear that says that there's bread in the house of bread again. And she has nothing else to do. So she starts to pack up. It probably took a little bit of time because they would have to sell off some of their possessions. They probably only were on foot and so they had to carry all of their provisions for the journey. And then they set out on the road to Bethlehem. Now there's something about going on a long journey that makes you think about things a little bit differently. Something about not being where you were, but not quite being where you're gonna be. It makes you think about life slightly differently. The journey makes the reality of the future feel more real. So Allison and I are kind of weird. Yeah. Whenever we tra- travel, we, this is us in DIA, Whenever we fly somewhere, we get to the airport obnoxiously. Like I'm talking three, four hours in advance to our flight. And the reason we do that is because once we always joke with each other that once you get past airport security, vacation begins. And so the, something about being at that stage in the journey makes the reality of the destination real. And so we love to get there. We sometimes sit there and, you know, we're probably sitting there planning on what we're going to do on our trip and, and making reservations for various different things. The reality of the future and the destination suddenly sets in when you're on the road. And so that's why we do that. And I think that that's exactly what happens for Naomi here, except for she's not going on vacation. The reality and the gravity of her future starts to really sink in as she plods her way towards her hometown empty-handed. She left her hometown having a full quiver of hope. (laughs) She had a husband and two boys. She had done everything right. In that day and age, if you are a woman and you have two boys, check, 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 successful life. And so she left her hometown full and she was plotting towards her hometown empty that longing that they might have had in the land of Moab to go back home and to see loved ones and friends, she's now going back home alone. And Elimelech's not gonna be able to enjoy that moment. And her sons will never know their family members. And it all just starts to sink in. And then she starts to realize that her daughter-in-laws are on this terrible journey with her. And so she begins to plead with them to go back. She says, then Naomi said to her daughters, two daughters-in-law, go back, each of you, to your mother's house. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husband and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. In other words, there's no hope with me. Why would you come with me? Go, go back. There's a better chance for you back there. There's more hope and potential for you back there. And she doesn't want just, just for them to go back and, and sort of like plod through life. No, she wants them to dream again. She wants them to hope again. And part of what the narrator gives us a clue to, the, to that desire, because she says, go back to your mother's house. It would have been more common to say, go back to your father's house, because a father's house represented safety and security and, and, and financial stability, But when she says, go back to your mother's house, it's sort of like this little subtle hint to us that she's saying, go back and plan a wedding. You go to mom to plan a wedding. And she says, she wants him to start dreaming of another husband again. She wants him to think past this season, think bigger, go home. Don't, just whatever you do, don't go with me. But look at this, how they respond to Naomi. They wept aloud and said to her, we will go with you, to your people. I love this verse because it's on this little um, piece of information that the narrator gives us that I think we see a ton of what Naomi is all about, a ton of her character. I mean, think about this. You have two daughter-in-laws wanting to go to a foreign land where they will be hated with their mother-in-law. <laughs> I mean, that's a miracle in and of itself. Am I not right? Right that speaks of her character about the tremendous woman that she must have been, right? They're willing to risk it all and go with her. And, they, and we, we also see that the, not just this deep love from the weeping aloud, but also they wanna be with her, they wanna be around her, and they wanna be with her people, which, which really doesn't make a ton of sense in this day and age because going to be with her people is like saying, I really wanna go be with the enemy to be an outcast, to be an outsider, to reduce my potential for getting remarried. Naomi must have lived a life that was so beautiful, so full of character, so profound that there was this draw in the girls to wonder what, what is that people about? And maybe, maybe what is the God of that people about? And so I think that this little verse, even in the midst of all of Naomi's lament, teaches us that Naomi was a pretty incredible person. She had a powerful draw for these girls, but she wasn't done making her argument. Listen to this. I'm just going to skip across this. She says, no, no, no. Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have more sons? I'm too old. It's more bitter for me. The Lord's hand is turned against me. She's Pleading with them to go back, she's basically saying, "You don't want to be anything to do with me. It's so bad for me that just by staying connected with me, God's hand will be against you." One of the things she she, she sort of like hints at here is this idea of a leveret law. The leveret law in in that culture was the law that provided for a widow if a woman's husband dies, then the that husband's brother was supposed to marry her, provide safety and security and children for her so that she would have some sort of hope in the future. And what Naomi's saying here is that's not even gonna work. That, your slim, thin chance of hope, that's not even gonna work because I'm too old. I'm past the age of childbearing. And even if I did have a kid, you're not gonna wait for them. You're not gonna wait for them to grow up and then marry them. No, 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 go back, go back, plan a wedding. Hang out with mom, plan the wedding, have a husband back in your hometown. And then she closes with this tremendous horrifying thought. The Lord's hand has turned against me. The Lord's hand has turned against. I mean, she is in a dark place. The question I ask myself is, is Naomi lost the faith? Is Naomi a bad God follower because she's blaming God for her problems? I've already made the case that Naomi had a tremendous amount of character because of her relationship with Ruth and Orpah, but I also think that it's helpful for us to recognize that this is a normal reaction to sorrow and to pain. So back to the question I asked in the very beginning, what can we do when it seems like everything has fallen apart? Well, the first thing we can do is acknowledge that grief and sorrow is a normal reaction to loss. Grief and sorrow is a normal reaction to loss. I don't think Naomi was had given up completely on God. I don't think that Naomi was a bad God follower. No, in fact, I think some of the hints that we have from the narrator says quite the contrary. Naomi was a profound, steady, God-following, God-fearing woman who had faced tremendous loss. And let me tell you, there are certain sorrows and there are certain pains in this world that are so profound, so deep, so heart-wrenching that we as human beings were not designed to handle them. We weren't designed to handle it. have got to remember that God created this world to be beautiful and perfect and a place of peace, a place of meaningful work, a place of significant relationships that do not break and do not fall apart. And so we weren't designed to handle a world that, When sin enters in, with that sin came brokenness and destruction and relationships that fall apart and the destruction of the world and our relationship with God was broken. Our relationship with each other was broken. Our relationship with creation was broken. And when we grieve, our entire being cries out, it's not supposed to be this way. And we are not wrong when we grieve. We aren't wrong. And you know what else? Grief is actually a way that the soul agrees with God about how things should be but aren't. So when we grieve, our souls are saying, God, it's not supposed to be this way and I can just hear God's voice. I know, it wasn't. It wasn't supposed to be this way. I agree with your grief. What else can we do when it seems like it's all falling apart? We can acknowledge that grief can overwhelm anyone, even the faithful. So Charles Spurgeon is just one example of many examples I could have turned to of a man who was, uh, by many standards, said was the greatest preacher in Christian history. Uh, he preached and led tens of thousands of people to, to the way of Jesus, and he struggled deeply with sorrow and depression and sadness, so much so that he said this at one point, I could say with Job, My soul chooseth, you know, I don't say chooseth very often. My soul chooseth strangling rather than life. I could readily enough have laid violent hands upon myself to escape from my misery of spirit. This is a a person, a follower of God, a faithful follower of God who was so depressed that he despaired even of life. Just because you're facing sorrow, just because you're facing depression does not mean that you're not a faithful follower of God. Jesus faced sorrow. We learn from the book of Hebrews that he faced such pain and agony against himself against, uh, because of the sinners who laid hands on him. You know, and he was perfect. It doesn't mean that we've lost the faith. And that's helpful to know. Why is that helpful to know for us? Is when you're in the season of grief, you think you're going crazy. You think that everything's unraveling and there's no hope on the horizon. It's all dark and it's all bad and it's never gonna be anything different. But to remember, hey, you know what? Grief is a normal reaction to loss and pain. So what else can you do when everything falls apart? You can also return to the rhythms of faith where you last found God. I think that that's what's going on for Naomi. She's, she's just sort of plodding back home. She's doing the next thing. She's moving towards God, contrary to her emotions, contrary to everything else going on in her head. She's still making steps towards God. And actually, this is the first answer to the other question I asked at the beginning of the message. The other question was this. What can I do in the good seasons to prepare to weather the bad ones? It's establish a rhythm a faith that your body and soul can return to even when your emotions can't. When you're in a good season, you can establish, establish rhythms of faith that your body and soul can return to even when your emotions can't. And this is actually, one of our values here at South is practice. And the reason for that is because practices have this ability of training yourself to live in the way of Jesus out of habit of body of soul, and of mind. Dallas Willard said about spiritual practices, a discipline or spiritual discipline or practice is something in my power that I do to enable me to do what I cannot do by direct effort. I know he's a philosopher. You might have to think about that one for a second. I had to think about it a lot. So let's let's read that again. A discipline is something in my power that I do. Something I can do that enables me to do what I can't do by direct effort. When we do spiritual practices, it helps us cultivate habit of obedience, habit of faithfulness. And I think that that's exactly what's happening in Ruth's life here. She has established such a current that drives her towards God that she does something kind of crazy. She says, God's hand is against me, and then she goes to God. It doesn't seem to make sense. Her emotion says, God hates me, and yet she's making steps back towards the people of God, back towards the things of God, back towards the land of God. And I think it's because she had established patterns of faithfulness over the long haul that was driving her home. What else can we do in good seasons? Well, we can become a good grief companion. I think it helps you to learn how to navigate your own shadows when you've sat in the shadows of another. I really wish I could tell you I was good at this, but I'm terrible. You can ask my wife. I'm ter- this, I almost didn't even wanna include this point in my message because then she's just gonna quote me later. But it's there in the text, so I had to include it. Again, seven here, run away from pain. My pain, other people's pain, if it hurts, run away. But I kinda wish I'd learned this lesson earlier because if I had learned how to navigate the shadows and the pain of another, I may have had a better understanding of what to expect when I faced my own. How can we love someone well when they're in the clutches of grief? Interestingly, the first two points are the exact same thing. (laughs) Acknowledge that grief and sorrow is a normal reaction to loss. You can't look down on them for going through grief. You have to acknowledge this is normal. They're reacting the way the human soul is supposed to react to sin and evil in the world. Grief can overwhelm anyone, even the faithful. Just because they're doubting God and blaming God does not mean that their deep spirit that God has placed in them is doubting him. Look at this beautiful text. Verse 14 says... At this, the final plea she makes, at this, they wept aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law and she goes back home. But Ruth clung to Naomi. What a beautiful thing. What a beautiful thing. Another thing you can do to love someone is to be with them, to be present. Don't be surprised. And that's exactly what what Ruth does for Naomi here. She's a good Grief companion. She clings. She clings. She's present. So I saw this painting a couple weeks ago. One of our members, Sherry Milot, painted this and posted this on social media recently. I just want you to take it in for a minute. I know it's hard to read the verse or the words there, and I'll show you what those say in just a second. But just look at that. This is what it says. Sometimes someone isn't ready to see the bright side. Sometimes they need to sit with the shadow first. So be a friend. Sit with them. Make the darkness beautiful. I saw this and I was like, oh, that's Ruth. Right? Even in her own grief, even her own sorrow, because she's a a widow as well, she clings to Naomi and she's a good grief companion. I love that. What can you do when everything falls apart? Here's the last thing I think that we can learn from this story is that we can remember that when God's involved, there's always hope. When God's involved, there's always hope. You know, at this point in the story, Naomi, Ruth, Orpa, none of them have any signs of hope. You know, we don't know what happens with Orpah. She could go back and maybe she gets married and that's great, we don't know. We don't know what's gonna happen in the future for this story unless you read ahead. If you did, how dare you? No, I'm just joking. But, um, but we don't know at this point in the story. They don't see the hope. There is, It's bleak and dark and there's nothing. But there's someone in this book that does have hope and that's our narrator. Remember last week, Alex told us that all throughout this story of Ruth, the narrator is depositing these little breadcrumbs of hope. It's gonna be okay. It's gonna be okay. It's gonna be okay. And so this is our breadcrumb in this passage this week. Back in verse six, we read that when Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people. And the Hebrew, it it gives a, a more clear picture of what that means. It's actually like God rallies the troops and he comes to the rescue. He comes to the rescue for his people, and Naomi is God's people. And because Ruth had clung to Naomi, Ruth is God's people. And the narrator wants us to see that God is still at work, even though Naomi and Ruth are blind to it. And another thing is that this... Ruth clinging to Naomi—that's also this little, this little spark of hope and meaning and purpose in the middle of this story. So this week, um, or a couple weeks ago, I knew I was preaching this text, and it's a, a lot of grief involved, and so I, I felt like I should reach out to some of our facilitators of grief share uh, because maybe they would have some resources for me to help me speak about grief well. And uh, if you don't know anything about Grief Share, we offer this this group uh, class or uh, whatever you wanna call it called Grief Share. If you are in a season of sorrow and grief, I'd strongly encourage you to sign up for that in the next time that that it's offered. But long story short, I reached out to Grace Hunter who read our passage this morning and uh, I asked her, she's one of the facilitators of Grief Share, I asked her, is there any insights you can give me, any, any help, resources you can give me? She referenced the story that one of the speakers for Grief Share uh, shares during the course of the class. And it's by Paul David, Paul David Tripp. And he says this, when you grieve, it's easy to lose sight of what God is actually doing. To wander down into a dark, windowless basement, the door accidentally locks behind you, and you can't see any light or feel the sun's warmth. But did the light stop shining? No. Powerful feelings of grief get in the way of our experience of God's goodness. I thought that was really helpful because just like the narrator here tells us, Naomi's in the in that dark basement and the lights are out and there's no hope and and she can't see but the reality of the situation is the sun is out. The sun is out. And she can't see it yet and she won't be able to see it in the next week and part of the week after that she's it's pretty bleak for her in this season but the sun is out. And what we have to remember is that when God's involved, there's always hope. There's always hope. Because God's in the business of changing situations. God's in the business of bringing dead things alive. God's in the business of redeeming what seems to be completely lost. So I shared in the beginning of the message that this text really got close to home for me. And... Um, So I want to share a little bit more about what that means. You guys are probably used to this guy on Sunday mornings. And that guy's real because for me on Sunday mornings when I gather here and I see you and I hear your voices rise in praise to God and when I see you worshiping, it's like that breadcrumb of hope. It's like that reminder that the sun is out. And so that guy's real. But much of the last two years for me, this guy's been a little bit more real. And I it would honestly be easier for me to share this for some reason if I could tell you that like I'd lost a close family member or something cuz that would maybe be easier for me to admit how hard it's been but what I've learned about grief is that and sorrow and loss is it's not really a respecter of what I think the scale of grief should be you know one person's grief is worse and even in this text Naomi says, it's worse for me. She's telling this to two widows, two women who've lost their husbands too, and she says, my grief is worse. So grief and sorrow and pain, it doesn't ask you how you're supposed to feel about it. You just feel it. It, it, It's all consuming and it takes over. And so I kind of wish that it was something like that because it'd be easier for me to admit. But for some reason, um, this season has been really heavy for me over the last two years. Uh, Since... Since Ryan made his announcement uh, that he was leaving, uh, that was a deep loss for me. You know, Ryan and I had spent hours and hours in that conference room over there on a whiteboard dreaming for you all. We saw people come. We saw people's lives transformed. We dreamt about the future together. We fought like cats and dogs. (laughs) We really did but we'd come to a place by the end of his time here where we just got each other, we were speaking, we were finishing each other's sentences, we were dreaming the same dreams, we would send each other the same texts, we would send each other the same songs. It was like a, a deep camaraderie. And the staff was in the place where I was so excited about what God was doing and how the potential of what was happening and everything seemed to be coming into alignment. And then he made his announcement and it seemed like one puzzle piece of my dream was falling apart after another, after another. Staff members started to leave, some of the key volunteers that I loved and that I'd invested in started to leave, and it was hard, and it was like, my dream was falling apart. And I wish I could say that I handled it well. <laughs> I wish I could tell you that, that I was super faithful, and, but all I can tell you is I did some of the things that Naomi did as I showed up, and I tried to uh, come here and be faithful and I found a good person, good people to grieve with, people who are good grief companions in my wife, and Steve, in Rodney Pennington and even in Ryan. And uh, I'm just plodding forward. I'm trying to remember that the sun is out. But you know what? God is starting to do here again what he did back then. And what he's doing is he's showing me that the sun is out. You know, the addition of Alex on this team is the statement deep down in the narrative of God that the sun is out. I love having Alex here. His leadership has brought a lot of healing to this team. Having Steve join our team here, the sun is out. The sun is out, it's, it's gonna be okay. Now, I'm still struggling with the new normal and what's the future whole, but the sun is out. And it's really helpful for us to know that when God's involved, there's always hope. And I'm not through it all yet, and I wish I could give you the one thing that was gonna make your sorrow and your pain work better, but I can tell you that the sun is out. So I'm, I'm gonna invite the team back up and we're going to close with a song. They're going to sing this song called Waymaker. And this song, I want you, as we sing this song, and they're going to they're play the majority of the song for us, I want us to stand and I want to, us to look at these lyrics as this anthem of the sun is out. That God is on the move. He's a waymaker, promise keeper, miracle worker, light in the darkness Because sometimes in the midst of grief, that's all you can cling to is I don't see it, I don't believe it sometimes, I'm not even sure if you're good anymore, but there's these little glimmers of statements of hope that we can cling to that says, he is the way maker, the promise keeper. He is the light in the darkness. You know, there was another day where there was a dark, dark basement that it seemed like there was no hope. It's when Jesus went into that tomb and the door was closed and it's all pitch black and there's no hope and it's all bleak and it's all dark and the savior of the world had died, the one who was supposed to come and redeem his people to rescue them from the world. And he was dead in a grave. But the sun was out because he didn't stay there. So let's stand together. Let's declare that he is. God is working in your life through this ministry. Join us in reaching others by partnering with us today. You can give online at southfellowship.org or on the South Fellowship Church app. Thanks for listening, South family. Have a great rest of your day.